the Truth and Reconciliation Committee was established in 1996 after the end of apartheid in South Africa. It was a committee whose goal was restorative justice as opposed to retributive justice. And so as people came and confessed their crimes during the era of apartheid, the committee granted amnesty. No punishment. If you're willing to confess what you did, you will not be punished. The committee was not Christian in its essence, but it was a rare example of people following, adhering to at least in some measure, Christ's teaching in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. By way of reminder, we're in what is often termed the six antitheses. This is number five of six. Jesus pushing back against something. Not the Old Testament law, It is so important to remember in this section that Jesus has already told us that he has not come to abolish the law. Rather, he upholds it, he affirms it, and he applies it within this new covenant context. He's not pushing it back against the Old Testament law. What he is doing within the six antitheses is undermining intentionally, deliberately, and emphatically, the Pharisees' teaching of the law. They had taken the law, misconstrued it time and time again, and applied it to their present context. And Jesus is working against that prevalent teaching. In this case, Jesus teaches that we're not to be vengeful, nor self justified distributors of justice, but we are to be disciples. We're to accept joyfully what it means to be a follower of Christ, which at times will involve allowing the outworking of evil in your life, permitting the outworking of evil in your life, if it would result in a testimony to a furtherance of the worthiness of Christ and his gospel. That is what Jesus is teaching in these few verses. In order to work through it, we'll consider first the distortion of the law, as we have done in previous weeks, and then Jesus' correction. What is the distortion And then what is the correction Jesus offers? Beginning in verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now he is quoting there, word for word, from the Old Testament law, Exodus chapter 21. And one of the reasons why this unit can be so difficult, or I might say one of the reasons the Pharisees' teaching of the day was so persuasive was because they presented their teaching as seemingly so in line with the law. 
Here Jesus quotes exactly the law, invoking the Pharisees' distortion of it. They were presenting themselves and their teaching as being exact, in exact accordance with the law, though it was not. He quotes from Exodus 21, and as ever, it is so important to acknowledge the surrounding context of the quote and the true intent of the law it was, as it was given. Back in Exodus 21, a law is given describing a possible scenario in life in Old Testament Israel where two men were striving. Suppose two men come together and fight with one another about some issue. If in their striving with one another, the wife of one of them gets struck, she gets hit. The offender is to be punished in accordance with the offense. So hypothetically, if in that striving together, the wife is hit and her eye is damaged, the offender is punished by having his eye damaged. Hypothetically, if they're striving together and the woman is struck so that her tooth comes out, the offender now needs to lose a tooth. That's why the law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the context. What you have to realize about that law is firstly, it was given in a judicial setting. You can read the law and it teaches the judge decides. The case gets taken to a third party who's not emotionally attached, not emotionally invested. The judge makes the objective decision. And more than that, the intent of the law was to limit retributive acts. It was to limit and indeed prevent the escalation of personal vendettas. It was intended to stop the husband whose wife had been hurt from going after the offender so as to, to kill him or to effect a punishment that is out of all proportion with the injury caused. You struck my wife. She has a black eye. I'm going to come and kill you. I'm emotionally invested, I'm offended, and I'm going to make sure that you suffer out of all proportion with her suffering. We see exactly this kind of scenario all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, when Lamech champions his own actions. He sings, I have killed a man for wounding me. Lamech says, I killed a young man today. Why? Because he wounded me. The law given in Exodus 21 is supposed to be limiting, supposed to prevent exactly that kind of escalation. Seemingly, the Pharisees had distorted that law in two ways. First, they had taken it out of its judicial context. So now, no longer appealing to the objective third party who's not emotionally invested in the scenario, you get to decide. 
you decide when and how to exact vengeance. Everyone becomes a self-justified distributor of justice. And even more than that, the Pharisees seemingly had robbed that law of its limiting intent and rendered it into an imperative to be followed at all costs. The intent of the law was to limit retributive acts, prevent the escalation of violence within Old Testament Israel. The Pharisees had taken away that intent and taught it as being something that must be adhered to at all costs. You caused an offense. I am bound by the law to come after you. You hurt my wife, you hurt my child. I am under the law. I must seek vengeance. They had distorted this law so that every man in Israel was now a self-justified, vengeful distributor of justice. Because you see, the moment you miss that limiting intent and you form it into an imperative that has to be followed at all costs, what happens is that there is no longer any place in society for forgiveness. There is now no option, no encouragement towards, not even the thought conceived, that though I have been offended, I might draw a line under this and simply forgive. Two men are striving. In the tussle, the wife gets hit. The offended husband has not even the first notion that they might say, let's stop. This was not ideal. I am angry in my spirit towards you, but I want to draw a line under this and say, I forgive you. It doesn't even come into his mind because of the Pharisees' teaching and distortion of this law. Life happens. Somebody causes an offense. Perhaps a child gets hurt. The property gets damaged. Whatever it may be, no understanding that perhaps I might respond by saying, I forgive you. Rather, the Pharisees have taught me that I have to now come after you. I have to seek an exact vengeance in accordance with the crime. A society without forgiveness, which is inherently destructive. Now, as you read the commentaries on this text, there are a number of commentators that appeal to modern-day Middle Eastern societies as they try to make application and so show the rev- relevance of Jesus' teaching, a number appeal to Middle Eastern context saying there is seemingly a very acute sense of justice in that part of the world where every crime must be punished. And in fact, the punishment of the crime in those contexts often goes way beyond the offense. Just a few years ago, I was in such a context for a ministry effort, and the weekend that I was there, a public flogging was scheduled in the marketplace. And the crime 
was by no means severe, at least not by Western standards, but this man was to be flogged publicly. And I, I think that is a valid observation that many have made in response to this text. What I think so many are missing, however, is that we live in exactly the same way. Not necessarily seeking to exact punishment physically upon one another, but today so often seeking to exact vengeance with our words. We live in a time where there are multiple different mediums by which you have freedom, liberty to say just about anything you want. Nobody vetting, nobody questioning. You get to project exactly the intent of your heart. And it has come about that now if anyone should ever offend, if anyone should ever mistake their word and say something that was rendered offensive to someone, the offended party is expected, even encouraged, to ruin the life of the offender. You have to respond. You have to use your words to render their life absolute misery. This so-called cancel culture is an exact example of a distortion of the law, which in its essence was good, was tended to be limiting. It demonstrates that we also now live in a time where there is no room for forgiveness. There is no forgiveness in the public sphere as words are many and people are encouraged to seek vengeance if any offense is caused. No one is teaching, you know what, perhaps you could forgive. Perhaps you could let this go. Perhaps you don't have to respond in this way. Famously, it's been said by many, an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. That comment is not speaking about the inappropriateness of the actual law given and its true intent. It is a comment that rightly esteems the Pharisees' misteaching as destructive. If that's the way you choose to conduct yourself, society is destructive. The sphere in which you choose to operate where vengeance is mandated at every opportunity is an inherently destructive area in which to situate yourself. And if there is the slightest hint of that kind of approach to doing life together in the church, you rob the glory from the gospel. So how does Christ respond? That was the distortion of the law. How does Christ respond? My summary of his response is that he teaches us we have to embrace what it means to be a disciple. We are not to be vengeful, self-justified distributors of justice. Rather, we have to embrace what it means to be a disciple. Let me explain why that is my summary of Jesus' response. He says in verse 39, but I say to you. This is his response. He's pushing back against the Pharisees' teaching. I say to you, do not resist 
the one who is evil. There's his command. Everything thereafter is example. Jesus gives four examples of this principle that we'll work through. Before we do that, think about the command. Do not resist the one who is evil. Why is that, in essence, an exhortation from Christ to simply embrace what it means to be a disciple? First, you need to remember just a few verses prior. Jesus taught, blessed are you when others persecute you. Try as best you're able to keep the entirety of the sermon in view as you look at its component parts. The entirety is so as to inform your understanding of each verse. When Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, there is significant overlap with his prior teaching. You are blessed when people persecute you. It is not an if. If you truly take up your cross and follow after Christ, you will be persecuted. Don't resist it. Don't run away from it. Don't pretend it's not happening. You are blessed when that happens. And more foundationally than that, to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus means that self-preservation is not your priority. To be a disciple of Christ means that self-preservation is not your priority. When you gather here on a Sunday, this church, this campus is filled with blood-bought sinners whose utmost priority is not the preservation of their lives. This campus is filled with blood-bought sinners whose utmost priority is the fame of Jesus Christ through you. That is what God has done in your heart as He has saved you. He has given you an impulse that is otherworldly. It doesn't match with the impulses of the world. It comes from Him. And it is a burning desire each and every day to make Christ known, to enjoy Him and delight in Him, whatever the cost. If I have to suffer personal injury, but make Christ known, so be it. If I have to lose my life, but Christ would be proclaimed, so be it. That is what a disciple is. It is someone who is no longer clinging on to their notion of well-being and self-preservation. That has been let go of at the cross. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been brought into a relationship with Christ. You have an eternity waiting for you with Him. So you can do whatever you want to my life so that Christ would be known. Self-preservation is not your priority. And so, with that theology in view, it stands to reason that there will be times when the most reasonable response to evil impressing itself on your life is that you allow that outworking of evil because it furthers the testimony of the gospel. There will be times when you accept as a disciple of Christ, you accept the outworking of evil in your life for the sake of the gospel. Does that mean there's no place for justice 
in the Christian's life. It doesn't mean that. It does mean that you're not the judge. And it does mean that you're not vengeful. It means that you exercise great wisdom to know when the outworking of evil is the very best course for your life for the sake of the glory of Christ. And so Jesus, with that overarching imperative having been given, do not resist the one who is evil, having issued that imperative, he then gives us four examples to show us some ways in which this might work itself out. The first example, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In Jesus' culture, which was very much an honor culture, a shame honor culture, to be slapped publicly was a great shame. It was to suffer great shame. And particularly here, if a right-handed person slaps you on the right cheek, that is to say they slapped you with the back of their hand. Great shame. And the, the spirit, the spirit that the Pharisees were encouraging is one that says, I am coming after you to vindicate my name. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Let them slap you a second time. Because that's what it means to be a disciple. In the second example, he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. A hypothetical court case where perhaps your, your personal possessions are now going to be taken from you. And interestingly, back in the Old Testament law in Exodus 22, there is a law that prohibits anyone taking your cloak. The law prohibits it. It's the outer garment. It's deemed absolutely necessary for your survival. You need it in the winter months. You may not surrender that. The, the cloak cannot be taken in the lawsuit. And Jesus says, if they're coming after you, if they want your personal possessions, give them even your cloak. Because that's what it means to be a disciple. In the third example, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Here, Jesus is leaning on and invoking the reality of the Romans being the government of the day that the people, the Jewish people were in subjection to, in and of itself, greatly embarrassing for them to have returned from exile to their own land, and now the Roman government were their oppressors, their governing force. And it could be that in that context, a Roman soldier grabs a Jew and says, I'm headed over here, and you're going to carry my bag for me. That would happen. In fact, we have a biblical example of that when Jesus was going to the cross. The site of his crucifixion, the Roman guards grabbed Simon of Cyrene and said, you're going to go with us now. You carry this cross. You have no option. You can't resist. Incredibly humiliating for the Jew. Jesus says, if they do that to you, you don't resist. You don't find a way to get back at them. You don't 
harbor vengeance in your heart. At the end of one mile, you say, I'm going to go a second. Because that's what it means to be a disciple. And the fourth, a very everyday scenario, if one comes to you begging, if someone comes to you asking to borrow, you don't refuse, you don't resist. You see how Jesus' teaching, do not resist the evil one, goes above and beyond not simply harboring vengeance in your heart. It goes further than that. You don't even resist the evil one. You don't, go fur- you, don't re- you don't try to just limit the emotions of your heart against vengeance and a desire to exact punishment in accordance with the crime. You go further, allowing the outworking of evil, however that may manifest itself. You're a disciple of the Lord Jesus, so you're willing to let go of everything for the sake of the gospel. Understand, first and foremost, that to live in this way creates a powerful testimony. When people see you living in such a way that you don't try to exact vengeance every time you've been wrong, but rather, with all humility and meekness and lowliness of heart, you would accept, according to God's providential wisdom in your life, you would accept the outworking of evil for the cause of the gospel. That is a powerful testimony to all around you. It shows people the preciousness of Jesus to you. They can only arrive at one conclusion. Jesus is precious to this person. And may the Lord use that observation in their life to prompt them to consider whether there might be something worth looking into here. There is a powerful testimony that comes about through not resisting the one who does evil. Notice also that great wisdom is needed. These are examples. Jesus gives examples and he expects that we would pick up his teaching and through much prayer apply them as is appropriate in our own lives. If a homeless person comes up to me at the gas station and asks for money, I don't think it's the wisest course of action to give him the keys to my car. I don't think that's actually all that loving to him. I don't think it aligns with what Jesus was teaching here. The principle of allowing the one who is working evil, freedom in your life requires wisdom. As I say that, my greatest fear is that you would latch on to the need for wisdom and appeal to that so as to guard your pride. What I mean by that, as I say to you, this principle requires wisdom. You have to think through carefully when you will allow the reign of evil to progress itself in your life and when perhaps you'll take another course. That wisdom can be used so as to not really submit to Jesus' teaching at all. 
You shut off all manifestations of evil in your life because you are so intent on guarding your earthly life all under the banner of wisdom that you're not actually obeying to Christ's imperative at all. And so as I say to you, this requires wisdom. At the same time, I want to remind you from where our wisdom comes. Our wisdom comes from Christ himself. It was no accident that we read through Isaiah 50 this morning. Our wisdom comes from Christ himself. He is the object of our faith and he is in turn the example of our faith. So as we read texts like Isaiah 50, we are to meditate upon them and learn from him. He did not hide his back. He didn't turn his back, but he gave his back so as to be struck by men. He didn't hide his face, but he gave his cheek to have his beard pulled out to be slapped and spat upon. Jesus himself considered his earthly life of such little value because he understood the glory that awaited him as he marched towards the cross. And now he calls you as his disciple to do likewise. To be a disciple, as Bonhoeffer famously said, Jesus says, come die with me. To be a disciple is to pick up your cross and follow in the likeness of your Savior. He is the object of your faith. He is so also to be the example of your faith. He is our wisdom. And as you seek to live like Him, may God guide you to know when the outworking of evil in your life is the very best thing for the furtherance of the gospel. I don't know all of the details of your life. I don't know what your Monday through Saturday looks like. I don't know the circumstances that the Lord has placed you in. But I do know that if you're a Christian, there is opportunity to turn the other cheek. By God's design, according to his sovereign wisdom, there is opportunity for you to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to give to the one who asks. To lose your life so that you might gain it. I pray that God would give us all wisdom. So as to not resist the one who is evil. For the glory of his Son in our circumstances. Let's close now in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for this teaching of Christ so well known, often not well considered. We're not to be self-justified, vengeful distributors of justice. We're to be disciples. Help us to accept and embrace what it means to be a disciple. Help us to grasp hold of the responsibility that comes with our salvation. To be a disciple. 
to let go of all notions of self-preservation. At times, to allow the flourishing of evil in our lives. Why? Because our utmost priority is the fame of Christ. Give us wisdom. Teach us to know how and when to turn the other cheek. To go the extra mile. To suffer wrongdoing. For the furtherance of the gospel. We ask in Christ's precious name.